It's uh, from Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Mo Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and the water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord saying, is the Lord amongst us or not? The second reading is from the Gospel of John chapter 7, 37 to 52. On the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit which believers in him were to receive, for as yet there was no spirit because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some in the crowd said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some asked, surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? Has not the scripture said that the Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem? the village where David lived. So there was a division in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the temple police went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why did you not arrest him? And the police answered, never has anyone spoken like this. Then the Pharisees replied, surely you have not been deceived too, have you? Has any one of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in? But this crowd, which does not know the law, they are accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, asked, our Lord does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they are doing, does it? They replied, surely you are not also from Galilee, are you? 
search and you will see no profit is to arise from galleries. So in our reading for today from John's Gospel, we're returning to a theme that we met a few weeks ago when we were with the Samaritan woman encountering Jesus in the heat of the day beside Jacob's well. In that moment, Jesus told the woman that those who drink the water from the well of Jacob will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water that he gives will find that it becomes in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And I shared the words of a friend of mine, if you remember, spoken as we had stood around the fountain at the Church of St Dunstan in the east. And we looked at the, uh, that beautiful modern fountain in that ancient ruined church with the water bubbling up from the ground. And she had read those verses from John's Gospel and then said, well, who wouldn't want that for their life? And this is a fine question and an important challenge. Jesus offers a way of living that is like a spring of water gushing up to give life to all who drink from it. And John's Gospel could have left it there and moved on to some of the other rich metaphors that we find in this Gospel for the new life that Jesus brings. He could have gone on to light, to bread, to vines, to shepherds, to doors, and we will come to these. But instead, just three chapters later, the Gospel returns us to this theme of water. There is more, it seems, that we need to discover and think about if we're to get to grips with the true significance of Jesus as the water of life. By the time we get to chapter 7 and our reading for today, uh, Jesus has gone back down to Jerusalem uh, again, this time for the great uh, festival of booths, sometimes known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Sukkot. So Jesus is kind of bouncing up and down the Holy Land at this point. He started in Galilee, he's been down to Jerusalem and overturned the temples, he's come back up via Samaria to Galilee and Cana again, and now he's back down in Jerusalem again for this next big festival. And the, the festival of booths was a kind of harvest festival, but with added layers of symbolism. And understanding a bit about it can help us begin to get to grips with what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 7. So at, on one level, the festival of booths marked the end of the autumn harvest. Uh, people made a great pilgrimage to give thanks for the ripening of the grapes and the olives, and to offer their prayers to God for the start of the rainy season, without which there would then be no harvest the next year. A winter of drought in an agrarian society such as this could be catastrophic. And the autumn rains literally brought life to the land and the people. The final day of the festival which John tells us is the day on which Jesus gave this discourse about living water. This final day was the day of the water ritual, where the high priest would walk 
from the temple to the pool of Siloam to collect a pitcher of water which could then be poured out on the altar at the temple as part of the prayers for life-giving rain. And this then I think is the first layer of meaning that we're invited to see in Jesus' talk of himself as the source of living water. And I think it speaks down the millennia to us too. I'm sure Matthew could explain far better than I how we live in a world where the well-being of the future of humanity is going to be profoundly affected by issues of water supply and scarcity. And as climate change continues, its inexorable transformation of our planet and desertification makes previously habitable areas inhospitable to life and agriculture, we too, or at least our children and grandchildren, may find themselves again offering prayers for rain and an end to drought. And as is so often the case with prayer, it may be that the answer is already at least in part before us. There is an urgent need for adaptation, for a rethinking of the relationship between our planet and its inhabitants if death and disruption on a global scale are to be avoided. From the decarbonisation of the global economy to planning now for those changes that are already locked into our climate systems, we need a new and better way of being human, where the resources of our planet are conserved and treasured, rather than exploited and taken for granted. And water supply will be at the heart of this. Without water there will be no life, no crops, no civilization. Jem Bendel, in his 2018 paper, Deep Adaptation, adopts a prophetic voice in calling humanity to resilience, relinquishment, restoration and reconciliation. To which I would want to add a fifth R, I would want to add repentance. Let me tell you about these. He says resilience will come as we decide what we value the most as a society and then plow for how, plan for how we want to preserve it. He says relinquishment will be the letting go of what is not needed, particularly those things which are just going to make matters worse. He says restoration will be the rediscovery of better ways of living with nature ways that have been set aside in recent centuries and which need to be restored. And he says that reconciliation is a call to move towards peace and away from conflict as we adapt to a new world. To which I want to add repentance as a recognition that those economies who have reaped the greatest rewards from the burning of hydrocarbons must take the greatest share of responsibility for driving change. Resilience, relinquishment, restoration, reconciliation and repentance. It all sounds very theological, doesn't it? Those are themes that we are not unfamiliar with 
in Christian communities. And as the people of God, the church needs to hear, I believe, the words of Jesus, who spoke to a world of drought, to proclaim that anyone who is thirsty should come to him and drink, and that from his heart and the hearts of his followers shall flow rivers of living water. I do not believe that we should seek to spiritualize this away. There is a spiritual dimension to it, and we will come to that in a moment. But if the people of God are not engaged in the climate crisis, calling humanity to a better way of being human, and working to bring that new humanity which is already in Christ into being in our world, then we are missing a key aspect of what Jesus is saying here. We are those who can call the world to a just transition because we do not ultimately answer to extractive systems of production, consumption and political oppression. Rather, we answer to the Lordship of Christ, who is the source of life. And so we can prophetically embody amongst ourselves resilient, regenerative and equitable living, where the transition to a post-carbon world places concerns of race and gender and poverty at the centre of the solutions equation. There is the possibility that the new world we need can start here and be generated amongst us. So as a church here at Bloomsbury, we are already eco-church accredited to bronze award level. But it is my hope that we can achieve silver and gold accreditation before too long. Some of us here are already involved through our partnerships with London citizens in the Just Transition campaign for London to prioritise the needs of those living in fuel poverty as the city decarbonises over the next decade. You see, there are two ways society can achieve carbon reduction, and only one of those is going to prioritise the needs of the poor and disadvantaged. The other will inevitably prioritise big business and profits. And we can be those who ensure that there is a better way of doing this, because we do not answer to the same masters as those beyond the church. So if you want to be part of these things, joining with me and others from Bloomsbury in this, please speak to me, please talk to me. Together we can work out what it means for us in our context to be a stream of living water for the thirsty in our world, making a genuine difference to the needs of impoverished and disadvantaged Londoners as we address the issues of climate change. This is not an abstract thing. And if you think you can't make any difference, you can. I had a, uh, one, of my, one of my former uh, colleagues, John Weaver, used to have a sign on his office wall. If you think you're too small to make any difference, you've never been in bed with a mosquito. There is stuff we can do. But then there is a second layer to the Festival of Booths. And it invites us to take Jesus' words to another level too. 
You see, the festival wasn't just about the harvest and the autumn rains. It was also a specific remembrance of the Exodus. You know the story. The people of Israel were led by Moses from slavery in Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea into 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before finally settling in the promised land. In the desert of the wilderness, they had need for sustenance, they had need for shelter. And we've already seen how the language of Jesus as the bread of life, we looked at this last week, we've seen how that recalls the bread-like manna from heaven that the Israelites gathered from the desert floor each day to feed themselves. And here in the festival of booths, as the setting for Jesus' sermon on living water, we encounter yet more of this Exodus imagery. The booths, or the tabernacles, they are what they sound like. They're little shelters that the festival attendees stayed in for the week. It's not quite glamping at Greenbelt, I suspect. These were temporary structures that echoed the temporary and portable housing in which the people of Israel lived through their decades of desert wandering. So as they went to Jerusalem for the festival, they lived in booths to remember that as God's people, they had this history of wandering, of living in temporary accommodation in the wilderness of Sinai. And the water ceremony of the final day, which I've already spoken about, in addition to being about praying for the rains, also recalled the striking of a stream of water from the rock at Horeb that we heard in our first reading. As the staff of Moses that had parted the waters of the Red Sea was used to part rock to bring forth life-giving water in the desert to sustain the people of God. And this theme of water in unexpected places echoed into the spiritual imagination of Israel and became for them a recurring symbol of the life-giving, saving power of God at work in their lives and in their community. And we find it cropping up in Scripture. So if we were to turn to Ezekiel, if we'd had a third reading this morning, it would have been Ezekiel. Ezekiel's vision was a prophecy given to the Israelites in exile in Babylon following the destruction of the first Jerusalem temple at the hands of the invading Babylonian army. And the prophet Ezekiel, writing to the exiles in Babylon, describes a restored temple with water flowing from below the threshold of the temple to fill a vast lake teeming with life making the stagnant waters into which it flows fresh enough to sustain fish, irrigating the land so that trees grow whose leaves, Ezekiel says, will never wither and whose fruit will never fail, because the water that sustains them flows from the sanctuary of God in the temple itself. Here in Ezekiel, the image of a life-giving stream of water becomes a symbol for a restored Israel. So he's writing to the exiles. They've lost their land. They've lost their temple. And he says, there will be 
one day a restored temple and it will have this stream that brings life this is a restored israel it's an end of exile it's a rebuilding of the temple but israel's ezekiel's vision sorry is far wider than just israel the restoration of the people of god that ezekiel envisages is of Israel as a blessing for all peoples, for the lands beyond Judea and Jerusalem. So Ezekiel speaks of the fruit of the trees that grow from the water's edge as being for food and the leaves as being for healing. This is an Old Testament image of living water as a blessing for all nations. And this image finds its way into the Christian tradition in the book of Revelation. And if we'd had a fourth reading this morning, it would have been from Revelation. Very similar text to Ezekiel. Another visionary text written for people of faith facing difficulty and oppression. And Revelation was written just after the destruction of the second temple by the Romans, paralleling the vision in Ezekiel written just after the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians. And in the book of Revelation, just like in Ezekiel, this vision of a restored temple also has a stream of water running through it. In Revelation's reworking of this image, though, there is an important difference. Whereas in Ezekiel, the water flowed from the sanctuary in the temple, the New Jerusalem in Revelation has no sanctuary. Rather, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flows directly from the throne of God and the Lamb. That is, sorry. Rather, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flows directly from the throne of God and the Lamb. That is Jesus. In the Christian visionary tradition, Jesus takes the place of the temple sanctuary as the source of life-giving water in the world. Like Ezekiel's vision, the river of life in Revelation also irrigates a tree and it is described again as a tree of life. And like in Ezekiel, its leaves are also described as being for healing, for the healing of the nations. So Jerusalem, as a city, famously had no natural water supply. But in the visions of both Ezekiel and John of Patmos, it becomes a source of life-giving water flowing from the heart of the people of God to bring life to the world and healing to the nations. So from Horeb to Babylon to Patmos, the water of life in the Jewish Christian tradition is a gift from God given through the faithful as a gift to all who need it. So all of this, I think, is in the background to John's description of Jesus in Jerusalem on the final day of the great feast, as the high priest went to the pool of Siloam to collect the water that would be poured out on the altar. Those who are thirsty, whose souls are parched and whose spirits are desiccated, are invited to drink deeply from the well of life-giving water that has come into being in Jesus, the Word of God made flesh. From Jesus' heart and from the hearts of all who believe shall flow rivers of life-giving water. 
And here we come to the third most spiritual layer of meaning in this sermon from Jesus on living water. The water of life is encountered in the world as the spirit of Christ. Now today is not the day for me to explore the rights and wrongs of the Nicene Creed and the Filioque controversy. But it is worth our while noting that the thousand-year division of Christianity into two traditions, Eastern and Western Christianity, owes its origin to this passage and to the debate over whether the Holy Spirit should be understood as proceeding into the world from the Father alone or from the Father and Son together. Seriously, we've got a thousand-year division in Christianity based on that. The Nicene Creed, the Filioque Clause, all of that stuff is based on this passage. Well, we'll save more on that for another day. But it's interesting to note, I think, that this idea of Jesus present to the world as life-giving water through the gift of the Holy Spirit to his followers was controversial not just in the historic Trinitarian debates of Christianity, but it was also controversial for those in Jerusalem who first made him heard this claim. Jesus divides people over this issue of the life-giving water that he gives, which is the spirit that comes through him and his followers. His proclamation of the gift of the spirit as a stream of living water, you see, unmasks all kinds of prejudice and bigotry. And we see this happening in those gathered round him on this final day of the Festival of Booths. Did you notice it? In verses 41, 42 and 52, we see racial prejudice and geographic prejudice and class-based prejudice. In verse 52, we see false accusations seeking to silence someone who has tried to speak out somewhat tentatively for justice. In verse 51, we see a tendency to disregard the rule of the law. And in verses 45 to 47, we see a disregard for the role of the police and instead a desire for mob justice to overcome. It all feels frighteningly contemporary, doesn't it? I've just been listening to a fascinating podcast on BBC Sounds. It's called Things Fell Apart, and I do recommend it. The journalist John Ronson explores the origins of the culture wars that currently dominate social media. And it's been salutary to discover how often Christians have been the originators or instigators of social movements that have oppressed and continue to oppress the lives of countless people, from the pro-life movement to anti-trans activism, to the QAnon conspiracy, to cancel culture, to racist bullying on Snapchat, I am afraid Christians do not have a proud record of tolerance and justice. Indeed, my own recent highly negative experience at the hands of hostile Christians online. Uh, I was um, vilified by uh, a social media site in the US about a month ago um, for my views on sexuality. And uh, somewhere over 400,000 people engaged with this post that was put up to, to bully me. Uh, and there have been 
somewhere around tens of thousands of tweets. I've had death threats. I've had people calling for me to be stoned and burned and shot from Christians because I believe in inclusion on LGBTQ plus issues. It's left me both shaken and somewhat despairing that those whose hearts are supposed to bring forth the life-giving water of the Holy Spirit as a blessing to the world and as a gift of healing to the nations, the climate and the planet, have instead, those people have become the self-imposed gatekeepers of orthodoxy in ways that divide, demean and destroy. So from contemporary Christian gatekeepers on the hard right of American Christianity to those who divided Christianity a thousand years on the nature of Trinitarian understandings about the spirit, I can't help but feel, just like those around Jesus in the first century, we keep rather missing the point. Friends, this call to be the bearers of the water of the spirit of life to the world is not an abstract calling. It's not something we can or should try to do alone or in secret. Rather, it is a call to collective action. It's a call to build communities of love and acceptance and to offer them as a gift to all to all those who are longing for somewhere to belong. It's a call to engage in acts of justice, building creation-centered communities with a bias to the poor. And it's a call to challenge any system, whether secular or religious, which seeks to exclude or perpetuate injustice. It is therefore a call to controversy and to courage. But it is also a call to generosity and to healing and to love and to life. So let us hear and proclaim the words of Jesus, spoken to us and through us to the world. Let anyone who is thirsty come and drink, says our Lord and Saviour. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you this morning for the energy, strength and fortitude we draw from you, from your message and from your messengers, people who show us how to love and how to forgive, how to unite and how to include how to be just and how to be merciful. As we are often upset by our own flaws, disappointed by our own failings, we rejoice at the many shining acts of integrity, generosity and courage 
We witness all around us in our daily lives acts that, in their spontaneousness and simplicity, make the kingdom of heaven less remote and less intangible. Dear Lord, help us develop a healthier, more sensible, and more mature relationship with our planet. Mindful of the fact that while natural resources are limited, our desires, ambition, and rapacity are not, unless we make constant efforts to hold them in check. May the awareness of scarcity allow us to make good use of what we extract from the earth, fighting waste, preventing depletion, and doing everything that can be done to give back to the environment. Dear Lord, help us recognize that many of the most critical challenges we face, from climate change to food shortages, from territorial disputes to terrorism, from economic distress to forced migrations, are deeply interwoven and no viable solution can be found as long as we overlook the greatness and splendor of your creation in its wholeness and complexity. What you made, what you saw and was good. May we resist the impulse to dissipate what we inherited long time ago and find new ways to pass it on to the next generations. Dear Lord, help us admit we are thirsty. Even when material success and mundane pleasures may give us a sense of fulfillment and of complacency in this world. For in the end, there's no substitute for your water, no price, no victory, no affluence can replace the life-giving, saving power of God. And no society, no community, no polity can thrive without it. May we see the beauty that lies in letting justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Amen. And now as we go, we hear the invitation God gives us through the prophet Isaiah. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You that have no money, come buy, eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money, without price. Listen carefully to me, eat what is good, delight yourself in rich food, Incline your ear, come to me, listen that you may live. Amen.